So we all know the world's population is increasing at a significant rate. 8.5% of people worldwide, or 617 million, are age 65 and over. And that's awesome. We're living longer. But if we're going to live longer, we're also going to need more healthcare. And the financial and logistical implications of doing that much healthcare as we get older is the thing that keeps many of us up at night. So this is where technology can help. Taking a new approach to healthcare workflows for patients, providers and carers to utilise more virtualised services and delivery models. Well, today on the show, I'm joined by Raj Kurup from Equinix and Charles Greatrex from CollabCare. And in this conversation, we're going to learn how to leverage technology to transform aged care, how health providers can provide care and better experiences for aged care residents, and explore some of the concepts and opportunities around aged care, multi-generational and remote care capabilities. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech, or let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Raj Kurup from Equinix and Charles Greatrex from CollabCare. Raj is no stranger to Talking Health Tech, appearing back on episode 145 and also featuring in a discussion about infrastructure in healthcare at our Winter Summit in 2021. Is the digital strategy lead for healthcare Equinix Asia Pacific, and he drives innovation for Equinix's clients by identifying creative solutions to complex and multifaceted business challenges, harnessing the combined strengths of people, technology, and partner ecosystems. Joining Raj on the show today is Charles Greatrex, the founder of CollabCare, who create digitally centered solutions that reduce pain points, increase efficiency, and expand patient access for healthcare markets. Hey, gents, how are you going? Hey, Pete. Hey, Pete. Great to be back. Good to have you on the show, and thank you, Charles, for joining as well. Really looking forward to getting in and learning a bit more about what you're doing and why you're both together. But firstly, we know a little bit about Raj already, and people can go back and listen to that episode too if they need to. But Charles, tell us a bit more about you and your background and what CollabCare is all about. I was asked to write a bio for this and realized that I needed to write a bio covering 50 years in IT. I, I am that old. <laughs> I started when I was 18 with actually one of the Australian's most innovative entrepreneurs, well before the word entrepreneur was ever coined, I think, in Sydney. And we were beavering away in the basement of his house, building all sorts of interesting tech. Went through a partial uni, didn't quite complete it because I got bored with that and went on with some other things. But he and I had a, a hell of a good time during the early 70s creating and selling stuff with gay abandon to pretty much anyone that was interested in buying it in Australia. Um, we fell out slightly. We never took a holiday. It was Saturdays and Sundays. And after a while, I decided that I needed a bit of a life. And so I moved to England for a year, started doing some engineering work for UK companies, all very interesting. And then my mum got sick and I came back to Australia to take care of her. It was the first time I'd realised that really life does have a pretty finite time span to it. Taking care of her a bit was a revelation in terms of what she wanted at a pretty young age, 55, but she was very anxious to pass on to me and my brother and sister uh, some of her experiences that she really hadn't properly covered when we were kids. And probably if she tried, we wouldn't really have been that interesting. But the result was that um, I had this inkling, first illumination of what in fact life might look like at full span. And I haven't really had that before. Anyhow, put that to one side. 
I got back involved with Michael, the, the innovator that I was with in the early years. He and I decided we were going to do something very innovative, which was to go and start a company in Silicon Valley and get some venture capital. So I moved to, to Silicon Valley in 1979. I think it was about 27 or so at that time. Michael and I were in a basement in a house in Palo Alto. He was raising venture capital. I was beavering away on some new tech that we had. Things turned out very well for the venture capital side of it. But by about 1983, he decided to go back to Australia and I decided to stay in the valley and started another company called Solaris Computer which was um, responding to the idea that microprocessors would provide an incredible amount of computing power to everyone. So the personal computer was born in around that time. Apple had been on that, doing that for a bit earlier, but the IBM PC arrived in about 82. I started building operating systems that would allow these new very powerful processors to be integrated with mainframe type environments. Spent the next 10 years doing that in the Valley, sold a lot of technology to really big companies that were desperate to catch the innovation wave. So that was very productive. And then basically decided that I'd had enough of the US. That doesn't mean that I was done with the US. It just meant that it's a pretty intense place. Um, 10 years in Silicon Valley with venture capital and stuff behind you. It takes a bit of a toll. And anyhow, I'm Australian. Australia had emerged from its social isolation. Someone had won the, the America's Cup. Alan Bond had won the Cup. I'd occasionally hear Australian accents and feel homesick, so I came back. During the 90s, we um, built a lot of technology here in Melbourne around ISDN, Ethernet, ultimately the internet, so all communications-oriented, connecting people with stuff. In the 2000s, we started looking much more closely at, at the bigger markets that we could actually target directly rather than just being an innovator, and health tech became a real opportunity. And the health tech environment expanded rapidly. So during the 90s, we became quite well known for our secure remote access platform, expanded that through the 2000s. By about 2005 or seven or so, I realized that there was something that had been gnawing away at me for years. And that was, what were we going to do about the older population? Effectively, what we were going to do about mum and when she died. And there was a recurring theme that had come along, possibly something that a lot of people have, which I also really wanted to hear my mother's voice again. And I was profoundly, I think, affected by the shortness of her life and the fact that we didn't get to talk to each other much and that any time she tried to talk to me, I was just a young boy expressing my own opinions and being a youth. So we started looking more closely at what actually the aging community was and how it might work and, and what it might need and, and discovered something that the Royal Commission has recently had a big say about, which is that once you get a past about 65 or so, you start to become somewhat invisible to the community. Uh, you become a burden on the healthcare environment. And ultimately, you become a person who needs to live in residential aged care for the last few years of your life. And you're probably going to live in residential aged care with two big chronic illnesses, which are really pretty catastrophic. One is chronic wounds. So that's where your skin begins to break down, skin being the largest organ in your body, and you end up with chronic ulceration. I won't go into that side of our business, but it, it's a very significant issue and something that we have got some interesting tech on. But the other side was dementia. And dementia is a shocking diagnosis to receive for a person who is living with dementia, as the term is best expressed. It's a gradual decline into, well, into nothing. It's challenging for everybody. It's challenging for the family members. It's challenging for the person living with dementia. It's challenging for the people who care for it. So we put some research and development in over the last five years. We've come up with some really innovative technology in that space. And that's what CollabCare is now pursuing, a platform that we call FamilyShare. And it's the reason why we ended up talking with Equinix, 
because family share and dementia affects pretty much every family on the planet in one form or another. Ultimately, we all go into cognitive decline. That is true for everyone. Ultimately, our lives are actually very short. That's true for everyone too. But more importantly, we've got to look at the issues of how would we scale this platform. And Equinix became an issue for us at that time. Sorry, that was a very long intro into something. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. No, look, that gives such good context. And yeah, you're right. We could break that down into seven or eight different podcasts, no doubt. And I'd love to do a series on, you know, what Silicon Valley was like back in the, yeah, the yeah. 70s and 80s with VCs. But we won't touch on that one in this one anyway. But, you know, this concept that you've spoken to around the impact of dementia for those that are living, not just for the the people that are living with dementia, but then the families yes. around it and everything that, that goes with it. That's a remarkably scary concept too when you think about, you know, yourself as a human and your memory and your, you know, the things you leave behind the fact that it can all go away but you're still there and it's you know you're not being conscious of it it's a mind-blowing concept and certainly one that's difficult to grapple with when you think about it and would be hard obviously no doubt for people that are going through it too we all need to leave a legacy of some sort i think that is a human need no you know mm. um, the question is what legacy will you leave and it's a very interesting and challenging problem if you like yeah um, to bring Raj into this conversation here, you know, some of the, and actually Charles, you might be able to speak to some of the context as well. You know, you mentioned bringing Equinix into the picture in terms of some of the infrastructure. Tell us a bit more about from a technology side of things, why it was important getting in touch with Equinix. Well, we built our own data centers when data centers were things you could build yourself back in the 2000s. We, we had fun building all sorts of things over the years, over the decades, <laughs> but there comes a time when you look at this from a true scaling point of view, and there's no potential for a company to build out the data center services required. These days, you can go one of two ways. You certainly can't do it yourself, so that's clear. You can go one of two ways. You can build into what's known as a public cloud, which is AWS and Azure and Google, whatever. Or you can take a more considered approach, we think, which is to work with partners that are heavily invested in specifically scaling. So Equinix and some others, but Equinix in particular, after we looked at this space very closely, represented a company that really did have an incredibly good investment in scale. Now, they have hundreds of data centers around the world. They have interconnections that allow us to operate the network that we need to build, which needs to be incredibly reliable, fully backed up, very fast, predictable. Public cloud, yeah, well, it's a bit of, you know, you pay for what you get and good luck with that because there isn't anyone to call. With us, we needed something that was much more under our control and in reality, much more scalable. So Equinix fit the bill. Plus, they understand what they need to do. They're not trying to dominate the planet with everything that moves. That's kind of an Amazon, Microsoft mm. approach. Mm. They're very, very good at doing exactly what they have chosen to be specialists in. Unrelated, but it reminds me of, and I've never really thought about it that way, but when you were saying, you know, building on a public cloud versus an organization that built something quite specialized for the area. I think of myself with talking health tech and anyone that's running a business, you can leverage Facebook and other social medias to build a community or anything on, but it's rented space. So, yes. you know, there's not a great deal of power and no one to call in the event it goes wrong. And that's something that many can kind of relate to there. And that makes a lot of sense when you come to the data center side. And so Raj, you know, obviously Equinix is quite familiar with the, a lot of complexities when it comes to dealing with this type of data. It's not just, you, you run a data, a lot of sensitive information that's being stored there. So that's quite important. Yeah, again, Pete, if uh, I may add on to what Charles was saying, I mean, one of the key thing is scaling globally. 
deploying the infrastructure where you want to deploy the infrastructure, finding the right balance, right? It's a hybrid multi-cloud world. Everything doesn't live on a single cloud. It's actually multi-cloud or your own private infrastructure solving for some of the regulatory challenges or data security and privacy challenges as well. So it's always finding that balance. And I think uh, that is where our strength lies in terms of bringing together these rich ecosystems, rich ecosystems that Charles touched on, and not just the clouds, but connectivity. We're talking about moving content and media across the globe, right? We do that really well, and we have been doing that for over 20 years uh, right now. The rich ecosystem of partners that you might want to connect to, to innovate. That's essentially what we bring to the table. And running our core infrastructure or core data center, we've done that really well with 6.9 availability. But what we are building on top, which actually enables our customers to land where they want to go, connect with whoever they want to connect to, and partner with whoever they want to partner with digitally, that actually adds a lot of value for a lot of customers. Yeah. Um, going to more detail, Charles, you know, some of the challenges or some of the reasons, you know, conceptually, uh, I get the reason and that makes a lot of sense in terms of partnering with Equinix, but some of those infrastructure challenges that needed to be overcome, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, we are very comfortable running our own tech. I think it's probably a starting point. And that's true for most, let's call it enterprise scale clients of Equinix, even though we're not an enterprise scale client by any sense. But we do come from a history of being comfortable running and operating infrastructure ourselves. We've done it for at least 20 years now. So we might be a little different from your average, if you like, startup who really has no concept of uh, running things themselves. They just throw it out into the cloud and hope for the best. That's fine, but they will run into, as they scale, they will absolutely run into the problems of scale. And the problems of scale are very complex. They're not solved easily by running in the public cloud. They're better solved, we think, by investing at least some of our effort into what we might call a private cloud. Uh, It's really a hybrid cloud. I think Raj used the correct term there. We do have some infrastructure in AWS and some in Azure. There's various reasons for doing that. Certainly a lot of backup stuff is sent across to cold storage in some of those public cloud places. They're quite good for that and they're very cheap. But for our core infrastructure, we don't feel comfortable that the control, if you like, that we need to have is available through the public cloud. And I don't think that's going to change. I think the public cloud is what it is. It offers a service. In many respects, it's a bit like a bus or a train. It works well. It has a certain amount of scale. It'll take you to certain places. But when you want to get off and you want to get to those final endpoints that are relevant to what we're doing, you're going to have to use something that has a private context to it. As I said, we're comfortable with managing the infrastructure in this hybrid space. And I think Equinix do a really good job of understanding the way people like us scale. They've got great backbone connectivity, for instance, straight into Azure. That means we don't have to transit the public internet for traffic, which we want to send through private and high-speed guaranteed links. And those sort of things are not easily available from other Equinix competitors. There's some of them around, some of them are regional, so they do well locally, but they don't do so well if I want to put something into Europe or Africa, for example. (laughs) You just got to look at it and go, okay, how does Equinix look at their business model going forward? And does that converge with what we want? And the answer is absolutely. I can't say the same for Amazon. That certainly is true. bit unsure about Microsoft Azure. I know Microsoft have got lots of plans and claims and whatever, but they are very Microsoft. And I think, unfortunately, they will remain 
Microsoft for a while to come. We'll see. <laughs> Ask me that question in 10 years. And I'll, I'll yeah. for that, so. We'll probably all be owned by Microsoft at that point. Who knows? No, but at the, possible. Um, changing tracks a little bit and looking at HK, you touched on that before. And some of these HK providers, those operating in the HK space, following the Royal Commission and just generally the environment in which we're in, there's a strong need to digitize. What are going to be some of the challenges that aged care providers face when they need to try and deliver more and more of these, I guess, call them digitally enabled models of care? Yeah, I'd go more basically than, than digitizing, although that's the obvious answer to the question is they've been required to innovate. That's what they're asked for. The gauntlet that was thrown down by the Royal Commission and, and indeed by the government in their auditing processes and all, there's now in the audit a number of questions asked about innovation. And for most aged care operators, innovation is a very difficult word. And if you combine it with digital innovation, it's a huge challenge. I mean, how would you do that? But I can give you an example. Now, I'll use a clinical example rather than the family side example, because that, as I said, probably the subject of you know, more conversation we can have here. But for example, aged care operators have with people who are living with dementia traditionally resolved the big challenge of agitation and aggression, which comes with dementia. People are disoriented. They become quite aggressive, very difficult to manage. Aged care operators have tended to rely on the use of psychotropic drugs, impolitely suggested as chemical restraint. Now, I don't want any of my loved ones chemically restrained in an aged care facility. And the Royal Commission came out and said rather clearly that that was totally inappropriate. But what do you do? And the answer is, we think, you take remembrance therapy, which is a reasonably well understood, we think very well demonstrated therapy mechanism, and you use that as an earlier intervention. And that's what Family Share, the platform that we're building, allows to happen. Now, it's only one facet of what Family Share is about, but it is actually quite an interesting one because, in terms of digital innovation, an aged care operator has the ability to use an iPad as a bit of technology and then Family Share running on it, which provides this remembrance therapy context to early intervene in a resident living with dementia before they administer a psychotropic drug. Now, we think that that is a clinical protocol that makes sense. We think the Australian government, uh, the ageing community, believes that that's probably a good thing to do as well. Our challenge, of course, is that we are now taking what is effectively a digital innovation. I wouldn't say uh, it's not a digital TGA-approved process. That's not what we're looking for. We're just looking for a therapeutic orientation around something. And the testing that we've done really in the recent areas is dramatic. It's very dramatic. I mean, we can look at the reduction of about half of the psychotropics that are generally used in dementia wards as being suitable for earlier intervention, which means that Yes, you might at the end of the day end up with the use of some of these drugs, but uh, during the day, the use of family share or a uh, dementia therapy platform can actually offset or reduce or completely stop the need for psychotropics. Now, that's a huge issue. It's not a dollar issue, really. I mean, psychotropic drugs can be pretty inexpensive, but for family members and for the general outcome associated with the person, it's a whole lot better to have them up and around and happy than it is to have them drugged out and unaware of their environment. And as I said, for a family member, as far as I'm concerned, that's a mandatory. This is not an option. This has got to happen. Right? Yeah. No, look, I'm certainly on a, on a similar wavelength to you there. And I love this concept of different pieces of technologies that have the potential to be as, if not more effective mm. than 
medication, any kind of medication and reduce the need for that. Mm. And like you say, it's not a cost thing because there's more benefit down the line for other things. But for just to go back one, something that I don't think we gave a great deal of clarity on for those that are interested, family share, we've mentioned it a few times. What exactly are we looking at here? What does that look like? So family share is a commercialization, if you like, the early stages of a lot of research and development that one of our other group operations has done into the dementia space. It's triggered originally by some PhD research that was done out of Monash Uni by Dr. Canvanea, who interestingly is not a clinician. He's actually an industrial designer. He has a PhD in industrial design. And his questions were around how would an elder person use a device which resembles in many respects the social media that we all use, the sort of WhatsApp, the Facebook, the Instagram, you know, the idea of pictures and YouTube movies and communications with friends and relatives. How would you design that for someone who is older? You know, everything's designed for people who are IT literate and all tech savvy and, you know, most of them are in their 20s. I mean, I'm not in my 20s, rather, obviously. I think I turned 68 just recently, and I'm very, very tech-oriented, right? But even I struggle with some of these things occasionally. Well, struggle might be overdoing it a bit, but, you know, it's like sometimes you just look at it and think, oh, my God, why is it this way? So we've spent a huge amount of effort in family share of producing an interface which is designed to deliver a lot of the things that you might expect from a modern communications platform with messaging and video and voice and images and movies and all of those sorts of things in a format which is really easy to use and suitable for people who are in that older age bracket, that last, let's say, third of your life when you're really looking at the content rather than the tech. But since we ran into Canva in a very serendipitous meeting that I had with him some years ago and the incredible sense of, okay, this is the solution. This is what I wanted with my mum. I'd be able to hear my mother's voice. I can annotate images. I can record stuff. I can play it back. I can have it available for multiple generations. 200 years going forward, there's stuff that people will want to see and listen to. I'll challenge Facebook and Instagram as to whether there's stuff that 200 years from now people will be interested in that happened 200 years earlier. Now that's the goal. I'm so grateful. I'm so <laughs> grateful for the fact that I just missed that generation that put absolutely everything onto the internet. Exactly. So I shudder for my own kids about what the potential is there. It, but, it's, so, yeah. it's a challenge, but certainly for all of us who, who recognize the value of passing on a legacy, if you like, information, memories, and all the rest of it, there's some really quite interesting stories that have come out of this initial approach, which brings incredible value to family members and uh, real value to uh, the people living with dementia who really otherwise are just kind of shut out from what would be participation in family life. And we want to solve that and we want to solve it at scale. Those two things, I mean, you can build a little app. There's plenty of little apps around that do various things that operate in the space. But if you want to do that at the billion participant level, then you have to think about scale. And that's obviously a major factor in what we're doing. Makes a lot of sense. I guess to start to close out some of the conversation and think about then what that future looks like, you've touched on it there in terms of the need for scale. What's on the horizon? What are you working on in terms of that big picture and how might Equinix support in that growth? Yeah, good question. We are intending to take the platform into the US. We've just signed a deal with a partner in the US who's very invested in nursing homes, as they like to call them in the US. They are very innovative. They've got some great clients, really large clients that we would like to have access to. And they see our platform as being very much a partner for the stuff that they're doing, more in the clinical messaging side of things. Um, that should allow us, we've got a, a CEO established in Baltimore and Maryland, a guy that we've known for years who's got a lot of very similar views to what we're doing. 
And we're in the process now of raising some funding to allow us to make that jump. The leap into the US market is a big one. Uh, I've obviously lived in the US for 10 years and, and all, and, and the CEO of Collab Care, my CEO from Collab Care is an American, so that helps a bit. Equinix helps a lot in terms of having a really, really strong US presence. So just as we've been able to work very closely with Equinix in Australia and, and have the opportunity to really get personal with them, which is great, the same applies to Equinix in the US. Once we have a better handle on what the US market is doing, which is almost identical to the Australian market, I know their healthcare system in the US at the family medicine level is different. They, they use an HMO model. But in the nursing home model, it's exactly the same as Australia, funded in a very, very similar ways with very similar regulation. So we think the match with what we're doing here in Australia is a perfect one for the US. It gets a little more complicated when you get into the European market and then elsewhere. But I think uh, having set sights on the US and having that as a challenge for this year, uh, having Equinix as a partner there is great. It solves a whole bunch of issues that we would otherwise have to re-engineer. We don't have to worry about it. Amazing. And Raj, anything else to add there? No, I think I touched on this previously as well. Again, as you start looking at overseas markets, where you want to go, who you want to partner with in these markets, the partners that you might work with would be different. Those are things when you start looking at when you want to have a consistent deployment model across the globe, when you're looking at scaling for this consistent deployment model, connecting to some common partners, but some different partners which are relevant to those markets. Those areas are definitely going to be critical. And again, I'll tell you other areas where we see a lot of value for customers, especially with Equinix Digital Services, where you do not even have to have physical deployments. You can test out a market leveraging some of the digital services that we offer. So in a traditional world, you would buy a co-location space, you want to build your infrastructure, you want to connect to the clouds, you want to connect to the networks. Now, all of that, you can actually do virtually, and then you can move into your own physical infrastructure as you need it or, mm. or find that right balance, right? Mm. And these are with the level of control that you want as a customer. That's something that we offer. And it has been expanding. If you look at all the markets where we are expanding, we have over 235 data centers as of uh, mm. this month in all key markets. And we have announced our expansion into Africa. We expanded into India last year. So we are expanding on the core platform as well. And on top of that, we are expanding our digital presence with these digital services, interconnection and other services as well. I should say we've had 100% reliability with Equinix, not 99 point whatever. We've had 100% and we've had lots of good comms from them. You know, this is a plug for Equinix. I mean, we get great information on what's happening, where things are going. Our engineering team is delighted to be working with Equinix, especially when we came out of our own data center, which was, hmm, yes, getting old. Let's leave it at that. So it was a great transition. I can't quite say the same for Azure. We, you know, we run our, um, our email system in Azure, for example, and it works mostly. It's pretty good. It's certainly not 100%. And I guess that's where the issue lies, is that when we're dealing with enterprise clients, like the large nursing home operators in particular, we've got to be very, very confident that the infrastructure that we're operating on is better than anything that they might expect. And I'm very sensitive to that. That's been an issue over the years. It's a lesson I've learned numerous times in the past. This is not a place to go cheap. You know, the cloud represents possibly sometimes a cheaper option, it certainly is advertised that way. But boy, you can end up paying a lot and you get it wrong. The lesson I've learned. I think it's the right balance you talked about earlier, right? Not everything is designed for collocation. Not everything is designed for a specific cloud. 
how do you find that right balance? How do we integrate all these in a very sensible way, right? Connectivity is going to be critical. Moving data between these different entities to complete that workflow is going to be critical. And again, you need to ensure that the users who are consuming these services have got the best user experience. The further you deploy your infrastructure from your users and you use the wrong kind of connectivity models, it can not only affect uh, you from a dollar point of view, just the cost aspect, but beyond that, the experience, the latency that you add on, all that can really, really affect you in a big way. So how you design that core foundational infrastructure, as we always go back to, I think that's going to be very important. And I think what we have seen, if you look at it, with COVID, for example, there's been a lot of changes that a lot of the aged care providers had to go through, or even across industry, we know that all of them had to go through a lot of changes. Uh, I mean, everybody transformed the way they deliver care, but companies like Collab Care, who were ahead of the curve when it comes to innovation, leveraging the right balance between partners and technologies, were able to quickly adapt to those changes and definitely support the laggards, basically the aged care providers who wanted to leverage technology. They were able to provide those innovative technology. In addition, they were also able to innovate on the solutions like what Charles was sharing, new products and new solutions that could actually really transform into a whole new dimension, if I may put it that way, right? So I think that is definitely what we have seen as a company as well, how digital leaders are going way ahead, even during the COVID and the ability for them to get way ahead and increase the gap when it comes to the laggards. That's amazing. Look, Raj, I really appreciate that. It's a really good summary and reflection on the conversation we've had. And I feel like this one's definitely been valuable for digital leaders that are be checking this one out. Um, look, Charles, I really love the raw and honest reflections and the, <laughs> the value around partnership and vision for scale and the role that technology and infrastructure plays in that. So we'll put some notes in the show notes of this episode and on our website for people to check out more and to check out CollabCare and Equinix as well. Guys, I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Go make it happen.